Good day, everybody. We're here on Sex Ed Before Bed. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with Matthew Ridley. Hi. <laughs> hey, do people call you Matt or Matthew? Uh, both. Professionally, I think I'm Matthew. Personally, I'm Matt. Okay. So, okay. you choose. I'm going with Matt. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthew and I met a few weeks ago. Uh, we met a few weeks ago when I came to talk to uh, Umbrella Mental Health Organi- uh, Network. And uh, that's a pretty cool, cool thing. Like, how long has Umbrella been around for? Uh, just over a year, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. Just yeah. over a year. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the only kind of mental health network that's specifically for LGBTQ individuals. Yeah, so I think that it's one of the only, if not the only, um, group uh, therapy private practice in the city that's, um, you know, specifically set up for addressing concerns in the LGBTQ plus uh, community. Okay, awesome, awesome. So Matt, can you tell me a little bit about what you do? Yes, absolutely. So I'm a registered psychotherapist in the province of Ontario, which means that I can provide psychotherapy. And so I do that in a variety of, uh, for a variety of clients. So I see individuals and couples uh, around a variety of presenting concerns. And one of those presenting concerns that I work with both uh, individuals and uh, partners um, who might be in monogamous or polyamorous relationships is uh, sex therapy, um, uh, which is a form of talk therapy where the focus of the, the conversations are around particular aspects of uh, client sexual experiences. Okay. Fascinating. I'm so curious, you know, why does sex therapy exist? Why is it important? That's a great question. <laughs> why does the sex therapy exist? I haven't thought of that in a while. So why do I think it exists yes. is uh, because I think like any therapy, um, therapy provides an avenue to discuss, to explore, to uh, come to new ways of understanding parts of our experience. And so um, often parts of our experiences that are less, we're less likely to talk about in our normal lives, uh, in our normal relationships. And sex and sexuality definitely fits that bill of something that may not, uh, we often may not feel comfortable talking about um, with our partners, uh, with our friends, with our families, certainly. And so sex therapy provides an opportunity to have conversations about people's experience of themselves as sexual beings and their sexual experience that otherwise might not happen. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And uh, certainly I think that sex is often wrapped up with shame. Mm. Maybe sometimes the introduction of it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, shame is often present in the room with us. We sometimes acknowledge it and wave hello. Hello, shame. Good day. I don't think shame is in this room with us currently, though. I think this no. may be a shame-free space. No, no. Between you and I, the experience that we have, you know, like... I went to San Francisco for some of my training and uh, I did a sexual attitude restructuring. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How was that? Really, really interesting. Part of it was meeting people of all walks of life and it was, uh, I met sex workers, I met Mm. exotic dancers, I Mm. met people from the BDSM community. Mm -hmm. Actually, one of the speeches from someone from the BDSM community, she met her 
lifelong partner through that community. <laughs> and I mean, it almost brought people to tears. Mm -hmm. And all the myths that I had about BDSM out the window. Yeah. And that was the idea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to yeah. just throw away all those ideas that I had about and sex workers and all these things, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. it worked. <laughs> Excellent. So the restructuring program worked. It was effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, the scaffolding. Yeah. There was a teardown. Yeah, yeah. And a, and a yeah. Rebuild. Rebuilt. Yeah. Some pretty new windows. and Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm wondering, from my perspective, in the, in the short time that I've existed on this planet, I mm. think we're getting more progressive. Mm -hmm. And what do you think? Progressive, uh, like sexually? In terms of, yeah, how we view mm. sex and people, yeah. I, you know, uh, from my own personal anecdotal experience observing cultural trends for the time that I've been alive, I, I would certainly agree with you. Um, I think that, you know, when I reflect on my experience uh, as a sex therapist, I don't always, I wouldn't always recognize that as happening because... Uh, some of the cultural forces around shame, stigmatization, and pathology that are associated with sexuality are certainly still present and alive in people's lives. That being said, for sure, like I imagine if I were a sex therapist 40 years ago, I'd be having very different conversations with my clients. And so I, I, I do have a sense that there is um, much more openness, if nothing else, uh, to talking about it to people to variety of sexual experience certainly than yeah before right. 40 years ago for sure for sure wow that's pretty interesting. pretty fascinating when people can you identify some of the major reasons that uh, people come to you for sure totally so let me uh <laughs> Let me list them out. Um, so, you know, so like I said, I work with both individuals and with uh, partnered mm -hmm. clients. So sometimes um, that they may be people in monogamous relationships or polyamorous relationships. Um, and so sometimes it may be around uh, differences in uh, sexual desire between partners where you know, the partners have a sense that one person wants to have sex all the time and the other person would be happy if sex happened once a year. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, concerns around arousal, ejaculation, orgasm, or performance uh, are absolutely concerns that bring people to therapy. Um, and, like, you know, something like, you know, quote-unquote, um, erectile dysfunction would be uh, quite common uh, presenting concerns, concern that might arrive um, at my office. Right. Um, other things around, like, exploring, so parts of our sexuality that may not find expression in our relationships. Um, so it may be uh, the content of fantasy that we don't feel comfortable bringing out um, in our relationship with our partner. It may be sexual practices or behaviors that we may um, not be ready to um, share. Uh, and so creating space and partnership for those to find expression. Um, I feel really long-winded right now, but that's okay, <laughs> I assume. Yeah, not at all, not at all. Um, sometimes rekindling desire if it's been lost in long-term relationships as well. So. Yes. Absolutely. Lots to say on that. It's funny how you, you put uh, erectile dysfunction kind of in quote unquote. Mm -hmm. why, did you, why did you do that? 
Well, so I uh, I do that very uh, consciously. So I, one thing I let my clients know when they first come to see me is that I work from a sex positive uh, perspective. Um, and so sex positive perspective says, uh, you know, essentially um, says that the only way to judge a sexual experience or behavior is based on uh, a person's experience of it. So their experience of consent, pleasure, and well-being. That's from Charlie Glickman, who's great. Um, and so there's no room for, in my mind, for me at least, for um, moral evaluation of sexuality, for um, you know pathologization of sexuality. And so erectile dysfunction is a, a very pathologizing um, phrase or term um, that uh, frames the problem in a very specific way that I don't think is the most helpful way to understand it. And so I would work with clients to reframe what they're talking about and, and kind of build a richer story around what's happening or not happening with their body. Right, interesting. So maybe people who, whereas pathologize, they feel like they have a problem or they're broken or... Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. Discourses of shame. Of Yeah, I am. What's wrong with me? My body doesn't work. Why doesn't my body work? Well, I'm a failure. I'm a sexual failure. Right. Performance for men um, can often be a really big uh, part of their sexual identity um, that's been inherited through social um, messaging around masculine sexuality. And so to not fit that role um, can yeah be very difficult. Um, and cause a lot more harm. Mm. That it's central to their identity as a person, maybe more central. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Have you? Are you familiar with Emily Nagoski's work? No. Who's that? She, uh, Emily Nagoski, she's got her PhD, and she wrote a book called Come As You Are, mm. which is sort of a guide to unlocking sort of sexual, sexual uh, I don't know, prowess or your mm -hmm. sexual self. Mm. And she underprints it in a really fascinating way. I mean, she begins by deconstructing, we're not so different, men mm. and women. Mm -hmm. You know, and she has diagrams that show how genitalia are developing and that we're kind of all the same till like six weeks mm. in and when you're in utero and then we start uh, differentiating. You know what I mean? But she, the way she describes it is we all have the same parts just arranged in different ways. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, yeah, and, and to your point about arousal and desire, she talks about people having different kind of accelerators mm -hmm. and different kinds of brakes. Mm. And that mm. those brakes and accelerators can be triggered by different things. Yep. And uh, she talks about, of course, like, you know, being in a more comfortable environment or, you know, if you're worried about getting pregnant, yep. STIs, condom use, all those things. Mm -hmm. So she did say that... Uh, she feels that it's women are kind of more concerned with context than men was kind of one of the mm. things she postulated. Mm -hmm. but it's great. It's a great piece of work. I have just written that book <laughs> title down and breaks and accelerators down because it's a lovely metaphor. Yeah. I'll totally look it up. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting, pretty interesting work um, that she does. So what drew you to want to do this work? 
Well, this uh, was a result of the training program that I did in couple and family therapy at the University of Guelph. And so uh, sex therapy training was a uh, component of that. And uh, prior to that training, I had no idea that I wanted to do sex therapy, that I had any interest in sex therapy. And after that training, I had a very real understanding of my interest and desire to do this work. Um, and so it was uh, in a certain way just happenstance that it occurred this way oh wicked mm -hmm. how has doing this work impacted your life that's a good question um, so I think that it has absolutely heightened my attunement to uh, cultural discourse around sexuality around uh, consent around sex work um, around pornography um, so that's one way that you know that there's. I feel like I'm I'm tapped into a body of uh, conversation that I wasn't before. I think it has absolutely uh, caused me to go through my own uh, questioning of uh, my own sexual practices, my experience as a sexual being, um, my experience of, as a sexual being in relationship. Um, it's. Uh, added another layer of complexity to yeah to my relationships as well uh yeah wow profound yeah a profound not everyone can say that about the work they do yeah absolutely you know? <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. to my core to yeah. my core yeah you know? yeah really oh it's fantastic yeah. mm. well one thing that i wanted to, to talk about is you do do some work with people who um have a compulsivity related to porn mm. mm -hmm. and I'm happy to talk about that I'm also interested in anything you have to say about people who use porn recreationally mm -hmm. because anecdotally I do think that society is concerned mm -hmm. that there's an impact yeah among recreational users, mm -hmm. not people who are addicted. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say about that? So the impact on recreational users, so creating two categories yes. in our conversation. Yep. One, people whose pornography viewing may be experienced as problematic, and then one category, people whose experience is just recreational and not problematized by themselves. Okay, so you're asking, What's the, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm all about clarification. It's the therapist in me coming out. Yeah. So uh, for recreational users, that the idea that there's a negative, some sort of effect yes. on them. Yeah. So I imagine that that um, way of understanding pornography um, and people's interaction with erotic media is faulty and informed by um, religious imperatives, moral imperatives, um, and social imperatives that are outdated and outmoded um, in terms of like w negative effects. Sorry, I'm, I'm, yeah. Negative effects of pornography. Yeah, and you're saying that it's uh, it's just based on like outmoded ideas and religious kind of yeah. Notion. It's not there's no foundation. There's no it's not founded in truth. Absolutely. So I've done um, you know a lit review on pornography use in couples um, and couples therapy response to pornography viewing. Sorry, mm -hmm. uh, and the literature available um, does not provide um, strong evidence that there's anything negative about viewing erotic media. Fantastic. Yeah. Everyone, your fears have been allayed. 
<laughs> Absolutely. You know, and talking about like sex positivity, sex positivity stands in contrast to sex negativity. And yeah. some people would say that we live in a very sex negative culture. Mm. And that view of pornography as something inherently bad um, would, I imagine, reflect a, a sex negative view mm. um, that there's something bad with sex. Right. So because in order for there to be something wrong with porn, there has to be something wrong with sex. Right. Um, I imagine. I see, yeah, but that's maybe the basis of it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Well, uh, I just, I'm so curious about what it's like, you know, to interview people. It's such an intimate thing, and, and I, I imagine it's such a privilege to have people be vulnerable with yeah. you in that way, and this is a particularly vulnerable talk, topic for people. Can you share any aha moments or surprises or things that you've learned from your patients? Mm. That's a great question. Like, first off, absolutely, I do feel um, both responsibility, great responsibility and great privilege to be having these conversations with people, like you said, about a part of their lives, which uh, is very sensitive and delicate. Yeah. Um, and so I don't take these conversations lightly. In terms of aha moments or things that I've learned from my clients, I think one thing that stands out is, you know, one of the great privileges of being a therapist is being able to witness really meaningful change in people's lives. And almost, you know, I think of it as like emancipation from oppression, internalized oppression. And so especially around sexuality, where if a client has an experience or a transition from being oppressed in some way in their experience as a sexual being to finding newfound freedom, that is a very joyful experience um, <laughs> and is so heartening about, you know, so much of being a therapist is so heartening about humanity um, and uh, people's abilities to move their lives in new novel ways. Um, and heal and all those things and so so it's not quite an aha moment but it, a moment of real meaning for sure mm. it sounds like you get such great pleasure from being a catalyst mm. in someone else's change totally and i'm barely a catalyst i'm just there to <laughs> i'm just there to open the floodgates um essentially <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah let's see what's in there yeah great all right let's pull that stuff out yes um yeah Oh. But uh, mm -hmm. to your original question, I think that, you know, I have also been privy to a wide variety of experiences of self and of experiences of sexuality. And, you know, I feel really honored to be able to um, have amassed and continue to amass uh, a really rich, varied understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to be sexual as a human mm -hmm. um, being. Uh, and so that, for sure, uh, is also, yeah, really valued by me. Mm. I'm just picturing the expanding of the universe mm, and the totally. expanding of your universe Absolutely. in terms of self and yeah. sexuality. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, before I, I did any studying on how to be a sex educator myself, I, I think that I had a, I don't know, a very naive view of, polyamory mm. I don't know I think I thought it was fringe mm. mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm just I'm like so curious about uh, 
I guess I, I what I learned what I've learned over the past couple of years mm. is it's more common than I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it can be healthy and that it's totally totally possible. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's great. You work with with people in all kinds of different relationships, including polyamorous as well. Totally. And I think, you know, the feedback that I've gotten from many of my poly clients are is that finding a therapist who is poly aware, poly positive, even in a place like Toronto is difficult. And so that's something that I've, you know, really taken into account with my practice that there may be people out there and, you know, for a variety of um, sexual diversity reasons who may struggle to find a therapist who is um, open, positive, supportive um, of their particular sexual diversity. Um, And so I I do try and um, promote that aspect of of my practice through conversation, through my website to ensure that people know that when they come to me, regardless of their experience of sexuality, regardless of their um, sexual orientation or identity or gender identity or the configuration of their relationship, um, they will be able to have safe, meaningful conversations with me. Um, So, yeah. I think that's really, I was so drawn. When I heard about the Umbrella Mental Health Mm. Network, I was delighted Mm. to hear it. And it's the only one Mm -hmm. that does this kind of work where it's, for the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. and uh, that's really important mm-hmm. that everything is clearly stated that mm-hmm. we're you're sex positive, you're queer mm-hmm. positive, and that people can go in having a certain level of expectation yeah. that there's going to be a knowledge base there Absolutely. and a comfort base there. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. I think that it fills a really important void. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. What I was going to ask you was, one of the things that you work on with couples is rekindling desire. Mm, yes. And it's funny because I was talking with a couple of friends who, uh, they've been married now mm. for a while and they're finding that even a few years in that the desire is dwindling. Mm-hmm. And it's become more of a companionship mm-hmm. relationship. And mm-hmm. uh, is that something that you find people coming in and asking about? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's not an uncommon experience, or at least certainly not for the clients who may access service through me. Um, and I'm really informed by the ideas of Esther Perel. Have you heard of Esther no. Perel? She's a sex therapist out of New York. Awesome. Uh, you know, both Freudian and postmodern at the same time. She's great. And uh, so she has a great book called uh, Mating mating in captivity Mm -hmm. and um, she talks about the challenge of maintaining uh, erotic desire for a partner over the course of time and so her thesis is is, if I get this right, is that um, eroticism happens through uh, separation, separateness, and often in relationships uh, we get close, create more closeness, more and more and more. And as separateness evaporates, um, as mystery evaporates, as the unknown evaporates in our relationships, there's no longer any gap for us to cross to meet the other person. And it's that gap where eroticism arises. And so I do a lot of work with clients to reorient their understanding of, of, of sexuality and eroticism and to find ways to create appreciation for the gap that is still actually there. Because a lot of the time, I think that we assume 
knowledge of our partner when in fact our partner is still fundamentally mysterious to us. Um, that we can never know what's happening inside our partner's mind, what it's like to look out from our partner's eyes. We can never know that. And um, there's still so much of our experience that remains hidden from our, from our partners. Um, and it's through the exploration and appreciation of the, that difference that um, sometimes we can, we can relight the, the spark. Oh, that's, that's very well said. No. <laughs> They're not my ideas, but they're good. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, yes, I could imagine that being with somebody for a certain number of years and living with them, Mm -hmm. you feel like you got them all figured out. Totally, (laughs) totally. Oh, this person? I know you. Yes. This isn't exciting. You're not exciting. (laughs) And what I like is that, you know, maybe for some of your clients, they live together. Yep. But this is exploring the metaphysical Mm. gap Mm -hmm. between. Totally, yeah. (laughs) Totally. There's absolutely like an existential uh, metaphysical component to it. Yeah. That, yeah. You're not inside the other person's mind. No. You know? You're not and never will be. Mm. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Frida Kahlo's story, mm-hmm. but Frida Kahlo, she was, uh, I think she was married to Diego Rivera yeah. and they never lived together. They had houses next door to each other, separated by a bridge. Mm-hmm. And I love Classic. that. I love yeah, that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be ideal? I imagine many people might find that to be ideal. Yeah. Well, I have heard of people who live one floor above yeah. or below, yeah. you know? You're close mm-hmm. enough, but like just far enough as well to, mm-hmm. to remain, to maintain the mystique, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, now, maybe, now, maybe this is a myth, but, mm, or maybe sort of a misnomer about sex therapy, but I want to talk a little bit about sex surrogacy Mm, that's a great topic that I don't know much about okay (laughs) (laughs) so you can speak and I will not okay okay well I when I was in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and I met a sex surrogate and I I don't believe it's legal in Canada yeah I, I believe you're right yeah and it's basically a person who facilitates a sexual understanding of the self that's it, mm-hmm. basically. And it's not sex work, mm-hmm. although it can involve um, touch and other things. But it's basically to help the person be sexually expressive mm-hmm. and maybe also to be more comfortable in sexual situations. Mm-hmm. But it's not about forging a relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. So now when I was in San Francisco, there were there was a therapist that was using that would refer out to a sex surrogate as a sort of tripod uh, tactic, mm. you know, to so you have a client, and then they're also seeing a therapist, but they're also seeing a sex surrogate as well. So, what do you think? Like, what do you think about sex surrogacy as a as a tool in Canada? What do you What mm-hmm. do you think about it? I can imagine many ways in which um, legal sex surrogacy would be advantageous for people to be able to more readily explore their sexuality. Um, you know, whether it's for partnered or non partnered people. Um, you know, there's a variety of reasons why being able to pay for a service where um, you're able to to do that exploration um, would make sense. Um, yeah, I think it's. I imagine, yeah, I can imagine a, a lot of uh, ways in which that would be helpful and beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you. Yeah. Bring it yeah. on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Matt, just going back to something else that you were saying about. Um, 
I, I, I feel like sometimes people want to be normal. Mm. You know, yeah. Right? Great. Normal. <laughs> yeah. Normal. I just yeah. want to be normal. So I feel like sometimes they're trying to figure out where their benchmarks are, what's normal. But actually, I don't think it's helpful in the realm of sex to figure out what's normal. I feel like it's great to get weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, let things get weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I noticed that, you know, when on your website when you talk about people coming in with the problem mm. and you, you put mm. that in quotations mm-hmm. where sometimes it's all, sub, it's all subjective. Yeah. People yeah. think it's a problem and it's it's just all in your, it's in your head and, and there's many factors contributing to that. Yeah, totally. I think that, you know, normal, the idea of normal often accompanies uh, <laughs> people into the office uh, and the, uh, the way in which people might understand themselves as abnormal or not normal um, in the way that that might bring shame or guilt uh, upon that person, not helpful. Yeah. particularly yeah, and so a lot of you know a big component of the work that I do with people is to uh, make explicit the the ideas uh, of sexuality and of normalcy that might be uh, like you said framing the problem or or you know how is this how do we understand this to be a problem well these are some of the reasons how we understand it if we understand ourselves like as not falling into the normal category and we have a strong desire to fall into the perceived normal category then then it becomes a problem Um, and so uh, expanding people's uh, conceptions of what it means to be sexual um, and the varieties of expression that might take like you said um, is a big part of the work that I do, for sure. Yeah. Well, Matt, what can I say? This has been more than enlightening. Great. And very enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real pleasure <laughs> to talk to you again. Yes, yeah. and how, I mean, people can find you. You have a website. Yeah, it's matthewridleytherapy.com. Okay. Yeah. And also through the Umbrella Mental Health Network. Mm-hmm. Use your favorite search engine <laughs> to find it. And uh, it's Rebecca Nava signing off. Uh, sex Ed Before Bed. So stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.